Hello, all you lovely listeners, and welcome back to Season 3 of Therapy Works, the podcast that confronts some of life's biggest challenges. I'm your host, Julia Samuel, a mother of four, a best-selling author, and as you might have guessed, a psychotherapist. Each week, I invite you into my therapy room, where I'll be joined by a well-known voice or an unknown voice who will open up about a particular struggle they have faced or are still facing. The mission of this podcast is to expand our understanding of therapy and prove that meaningful conversations that may contain difficult emotions can be profoundly healing. Let's see who is joining us this week. I am delighted to introduce you to Vanessa Vander, who is 38 years old and living in Kent and very courageously has offered to be a guest on our podcast. So the question I ask everybody is what is a challenge you're facing or have had to overcome? So thank you for having me, Julia. It's really nice to talk to you. And you. I would say that the biggest challenge that I've had to overcome has been um, living with um, somebody with alcoholism and the subsequent um, ending of that uh, relationship, um, which in this case was a marriage, um, and then having to to face everything on my own, running a house on my own, paying for everything on my own, and life onwards from there, really. That's a huge thing, isn't it? I mean, should we take it step by step? living with your husband who is an alcoholic and how that ended your marriage. Can you give us a picture of that? And what was particularly difficult about it? So um, I know that he always, um, quote unquote, liked to drink. Um, and I think it's really only after we got married that things started to unravel, I would say. Um, things were less well hidden by him. Uh, and there were a few incidents that happened. Um, and there were even times where I came home to find him unconscious on the bed at seven o'clock at night when he'd already had so much to drink. Um, we were meant to be going out for friends that evening um, and lots of hiding of bottles of alcohol around the house. You know, there'd be the drinking that we do together, which I think would be share a bottle of wine in front of a film, kind of normal um, couple activity. And then um, the frequent sneaking out of the room to go and drink directly out of a bottle of um, vodka. Um, so yeah, these were just a few things that happened along the way. What sounds particularly challenging is, I guess, first of all, you ended up marrying someone who you didn't know in the sense that you thought he was just a social drinker and then you slowly, it dawned on you that you were married to someone who had an addiction. But also the thing with alcohol that you're describing that is so distressing is that the primary relationship of the alcoholic is with alcohol. And so somehow you're secondary to to that and the kind of lies and the obfuscation. And I guess it's the distancing, isn't it? That it's very hard to be connected to someone who's constantly kind of working out how they can sneak and get another drink. Yeah, exactly. Because you think, if you're concealing this from me, what else are you concealing from me? So you don't trust him? No. Um, so I think to an extent, even if people, which didn't happen in this case, but even if people do get help with their um, problems, 
that for the person who isn't the uh, one with an addiction, whatever that may be, they're always wondering, I imagine, if, if there's something going on behind their back all the time. So it's a two-folded issue really, isn't it? So you kind of imagine if he's lying about this, is he lying about everything? Is he having an affair? Is he gambling? Has he got a porn addiction? It, did your kind of imagination go to scary places? And so you, I imagine, retreated. I didn't truly think those other things were going on because I think he was a working person. He, he held down a job and everything. Um, uh, I didn't think he had enough time, shall we say, for all of those other things necessarily. But even if he had got um, help and had said he was stopping drinking in the back of my mind I think I'd always be wondering actually have you stopped drinking or is there something still going on in secret um so that's also part of the um part of the challenge and and as it was he I tried to um take him to meetings and so on um and he told me his words were after a couple of meetings at AA that um he didn't want to go anymore because it was um fucking depressing hearing about why everybody else was drinking and I said welcome to my life. <laughs> so he stopped going to that, didn't get any other help in the end, didn't really see that he had a problem. Um, and I was coming home every day from work, just feeling so anxious in my stomach, just as I put my key in the door thinking, is he going to have had a drink? Is he not? Is he going to be conscious? Is he going to be fine? Um, so I just decided at, you know, at the end of it that um, I just couldn't carry on living that way. Um, I was 34 at the time. And I thought I've got my whole life ahead of me. And if this is just the beginning, imagine where it will take me. Um, so I made the really, really tough decision to um, end the relationship. That must have been such a difficult decision because you you kind of lost hope that he could change, that your relationship could repair and go forward. And you wanted to kind of stop to give you time to have your life, I guess. But of course, an ending of a relationship, it's also the end of the future that you wanted and expected and incredibly painful and such a such a tough decision. I mean, how long were you, had you been together? How big a part had he played in your life? For about eight years in total um, and married just shy of two when we split up and we'd um, bought a house together four months before we split up. So um, I decided to stay at the house and um, try and make a go of it, um, which was really hard because we, we bought the house on the basis of the two, un the two incomes. Um, but I'm still here um, now, so um, I've managed to make it work. Um, well done. So, yeah, it, uh, I think it's just hard as well when you, when you think it's going to be something for the rest of your life first of all, which you hope marriage is. I know it's often not the case, but you hope it is when you get married. Um, and I think for me personally, because I've never had um, anything, any major challenges in my life, I've been that person that's, you know, got my GCSEs, my A-levels, I've been to uni, I'm getting into the field of um, work that I want to work in. Everything, you know, there's been failures on a, on a small scale, but I've never had major setbacks and I've always achieved everything I wanted to to achieve in life and so it was hard not to see it as some kind of failure although I now appreciate after having been in therapy um the failure is not mine yeah I could really hear the sadness in your voice that you're grieving for the version of yourself that had so much hope as you went into the marriage and what that would bring and also the deep sadness and 
pain of reconfiguring who you are as you're divorcing and what it means to you. It's hard not to put the two together that I am a failure if the marriage doesn't work rather than recognize this wasn't your failure. And also marriages ending in and of themselves are no means a failure. They had the lifespan they had, I see it. Failure is very kind of judgy, isn't it? Yeah, I think I've been my own um, biggest judge in all of this. Um, and some people had said to me, brave was a word they used. Oh, you're so brave to have finished it. And I thought, well, I'd rather you know, be unhappy, like short-term pain for longer-term gain. I'd rather be very unhappy yeah. and not very adjusted in the short-term, but for the longer-term, it'd be the better thing for me. Um, but one person said to me, which I found really hard, do you not think you could have tried a bit more? <laughs> so that was a bit of a challenge as well. <laughs> but um, yeah, but I just said, you know, I, I did everything that I thought I could do at the time. It wasn't just one instant that happened. And I said, oh, you know, screw it. Let's um let's finish the relationship. Bin it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I tried as much as I could, as hard as I could, but um, it has to work both ways, doesn't it? And I think one of the things I'm kind of recognising as you're being so open is how the sadness is enduring. Like this, you don't just get over something like this that you feel really sad. I often think divorce is unrecognised how difficult it is. It was, um, fortunately, I think in a way, um, quite straightforward. We didn't have children together, so I just have myself to worry about. Um, and in terms of the house, it's at, it was originally, anyway, all in my name because it was um, my deposit from a family inheritance, fortunately. Um, so it was literally just as straightforward as doing the paperwork online. And then we got the decree nicer than the decree absolute six weeks later. Um, but what was quite shocking about that in its own way was that um, I, I, you know, got to the next stage of the paperwork and said, you can now apply for your decree absolute. So I went online and did all the paperwork. And within five minutes, I got an email back, automated email, totally, you know, no personal touch or anything. You are now divorced. And it was just like, wow, after all that, it's just so you know, um, I don't even know how to explain, just so robotic and just so matter of fact, you are divorced. It's quite harsh. But yeah, overall, it was quite a simple process. So as you remember it, what's coming through your body, that shock of like the sort of transaction was so robotic and yet your experience was so emotional? I think just because it was so sudden. I just thought it was going to be another application that would take a few weeks and you get used to the idea kind of thing. And it just happened straight away. And it just almost struck me as it's quite easy to get divorced in some cases. Um, and it just is so, so clinical and so final. Yeah. Yeah. So the external transaction is so very different from your personal experience. I mean, I can see that you really feel really sad remembering that, but also being divorced. I imagine a big part of your process of finding your way through this is working out the new version of you now that you're divorced, now that you're single, now that you're living on your own. Yeah. I think because it's been about three and a half years since he moved out, I've had time to get used to it. Um, 
we've obviously had other global events happening within that time, um, which made things even more isolating. The timing must have been bad. Yeah, about six months before the pandemic. Um, even though I sound upset today because we're delving into it, um, I think I'm finally mm. at a place where I'm happy to be in my house. Um, I think at my worst times, um, I felt like whilst I didn't have a plan, I just went to bed every night thinking, I just hope I don't wake up in the morning. Um, oh, Vanessa, you got that low. Yeah, so that was the worst. And um, it makes me feel sad for like past me because I'm not I'm not in that place anymore. Yeah. And I feel a lot happier now, even though I don't sound it right now. <laughs> um, yeah. What was that past you feeling? Just to go back to her and then we'll come back into present you. We won't leave you back there. What was it that led her to find living so difficult, so painful? Again, like the tied up a bit in failure, plus the fact that we had bought this house together. This was going to be our project together, do the place up how we want, live our life, live our future here. And then that was, albeit my decision, something that didn't happen so it's kind of like plans that never happened and me having to live somewhere on my own without him um I think if I had split up with him moved out and bought somewhere on my own it would be completely different I think it's kind of like a grief for a future that would never happen if that makes sense I think that's how I felt you grieved the dream that you wanted to have and I imagine I mean I this may not be true for you, but I imagine you wanted to have children together, wanted to make a family. In fact, um, he has two children from his first marriage um, and I haven't ever felt strongly about having children. So that um, that wasn't oh. a factor for me in this case. Yeah, but I think it's just I've always wanted to be married. I remember saying to an uncle, even when I was about eight years old, he said, I said, oh, I don't want to have children. He said, oh, you'll see the old, the old traditional views. He went, all women want to have children. <laughs> and um, I remember even eight years old thinking, I want to be married, but I don't want to have children. And it stayed with me. I really appreciate that, actually, the sort of clarity of not wanting to have children and that it seems such a clean and clear decision that you've had for as long as you can remember. But the emotional investment of the dream of being married is something that you've carried with you from so young. So we went back to the you that didn't want to wake up in the morning, but also to the eight-year-old you that had this picture of what life would be like as a married woman. So that's decades of dreams that you're grieving for, isn't it, in a way, that feels so painful and hard to adjust to. Yeah, exactly. I, I also believe there must be a reason why this happened. Maybe it's meant to be that, you know, my path is meant to be another one. Um, so, yeah, it is still hard, but I do feel in a much better place now and finally feel happy and doing my house up on my own with the help of my lovely dad um, and my mum. Just, yeah, making things my own and, and looking at the mm. positives now, looking at if I want to have, as I did last year, blue cupboards in my kitchen I have no one's going to argue with me about that <laughs> you know I get to do what I want so I try to look on on the positive side of things as well so now to come back to you now you are feeling much happier and you it sounds like you have hope and you're kind of enjoying 
the freedom of being single and how that gives you many choices. I mean, who has helped you? What helped you get from that very sad you to where you are now? What were the things that really supported you? I, I think definitely family support has been a big thing. Um, I've got lots of friends from various different areas of my life and, and they've been supportive as well. Um, and I had a relationship since breaking up with my husband. Um, we're not together anymore, but we're still friends. And he's who lived with me during the pandemic. So I'm glad at least that I wasn't completely on my own during that time. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think a few different people and I'm quite a social um, outgoing person with lots of different groups of friends and I make the effort to stay in touch. So it's good that people were checking in on me regularly and, and when we could meet up with other people as well, depending on various stages of lockdown, I was still able to stay in touch with people. So really it was the love of others that enabled you to get through. I, I think so, yeah. And um, I'm really into my running and I think that's also really helped me. Um, and it's still helping me now. Oh. Um, uh, I'm actually training for London Marathon. Wow. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> it's going well. It's going well, but that really helps me to get headspace. And running is an amazing force, isn't it? It's like having a strong body that's moving, that is building itself and has a goal for like, with in your case, the marathon, really gives you mental strength, doesn't it? You know, you can't choose how you feel or you can't, you couldn't have control over your husband being an alcoholic, but you do have agency and a sense of autonomy, like I can do with my body what helps it grow and thrive and that that is very resilience building. Absolutely. I think even if it's down to aiming for a certain time or um, aiming for a certain distance, the more you push out of your comfort zone, it builds resilience within you. And actually that resilience you can carry through into your daily life as well. Um, so that's been a massive help. Good for you. And you said you're social. So when you were very low, were you able to still ask for help when you could barely pick yourself up? Um, yeah, I was with my ex-boyfriend at the time. So he was just doing all that he could to try and cheer me up. Um, and my parents were very, um, very supportive as well. And they helped um, push along some of the home improvements within my house because I think their view was probably a bit like this is just me assuming of course but maybe their view was if we've done up a bathroom and it's how Vanessa likes it it will feel more like home to her and it'll feel like more like she's building things for herself yeah and I think particularly as parents we want to be able to feel that we can make a difference that we can fix stuff and actually emotionally they couldn't fix you but they could fix your bathroom you know and I think that was helpful for both where are you in relation to having another relationship or in some way fulfilling that image of your eight-year-old self being a married woman? Where have you got to? I think it's um, made me a lot more selfish. So I've almost gone the other direction in a way. And part of me even wonders, um, you know, whether I will 
be able to have a relationship in the future or whether I want to even have a relationship in the future. Um, I've, I've filled my life with so many things such as, um, yeah, the, the running. Um, I teach dance and working and doing the house up that I do wonder, do I really have enough time for someone else? I think if somebody comes along and it's the right person, then I will probably make time for that person. I'm open-minded, but I'm also happy as I am without needing to be in a relationship. I'm really touched by hearing you. It sort of feels like you've let your experience inform and change you, you know, from a simple kind of Cinderella view of marriage when you're eight to like a 38-year-old woman who knows that you have a lot in your life that you really enjoy and that you can thrive you're not a half person without a partner. I did a, an article on single shaming. And one of the things I researched was that a website showed that 58% of women were really happy with their single status, but that they experienced a lot of judgment and criticism and single shaming. And so I'm curious whether that's been your experience too. I don't think it it has just because people know what I've come through. I think it's very different as well. If you have never been married, perhaps that's more of a pressure, whether that's self-imposed or imposed by other people. Um, but because I have been married and that hasn't worked out and that's not been down to me, I don't think people are putting pressure. Um, that said, a couple of family members have expressed on occasion their concern that they don't want me to end up alone. I wouldn't necessarily count that as pressure, but um, yeah, I think the relationship norms in society today are still that you need to be in one from a lot of people. And also have, as a woman in particular, have kids. So in some ways, there's fixed beliefs about, you know, getting married, having children, we don't need them in the way that we did from our evolutionary biology in order to survive. And you're now kind of really letting your experience and the, tr the truth of what is open to you inform you and give you freedom and choices rather than kind of tick boxes. Exactly. I, th I think I've got a lot of love to give as a person, but whether that looks like um, even later on down the line, maybe adoption if I find myself in a place where I think you know I could contribute a lot to somebody else's upbringing um, and that's something that I really want to do that perhaps that's an option um, I think the physical side of pregnancy and labor hugely puts me off um, which <laughs> I'm very selfish to say would put a stop to my running albeit temporarily and mm. I, I quite like my life mm. the way it is um, so there are options out there I really like hearing that you like the life that you have so looking back on this, what have you learned? What are you taking forward into your present and your future? Um, I've learned that I'm a lot more resilient than I thought I was. Um, I went from living at home with my parents to living with my boyfriend who became my husband. And I kind of felt like I always needed to live with someone in, and have some kind of family unit, however that looked. Um, so I know now that um, that's not something that I necessarily need. Um, I think a big part of when we broke up as well was me thinking on a practical level, I don't know how to fix things and if things go wrong or if things need replacing, what am I going to do? And I think one of the biggest pressures for me was actually financial pressure. How am I going to pay the mortgage on my own? How am I going to pay um, 
if things go wrong, um, but somehow things have always worked out and it's always been possible. And it does lead into the present situation that I have where I lost my job a few weeks ago. Um, and oh, so if that had happened to, thank you, if that, if that had happened to the me of 2019 or 2020 even, I'm not sure how I would have coped, but I'm just structuring my day with time spent looking for work and time spent working on you know, my running plan uh, towards my marathon training and time spent doing something for me whether it's reading a book or watching a film or something and then time spent just doing something productive around the house to keep the structure going um, and I think that how I am with my current situation now with the uncertainty of you know especially related to income if I hadn't gone through the experience with my ex-husband, I don't think I would have been coping as well as I am now with this situation. So it's it's kind of done me a favour, if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, you've really learned that you can survive very, very difficult things. And that has given you confidence, you know, losing your job, which you might well have felt was a catastrophe two years ago, three years ago. And now it's like... I know I can do this. I've been through hard things. I am someone who can live through hard things. And I know what works for me. I know that running, I know that structure, I know that getting things done. I know that kind of feeding my soul and seeing people helps me. And that will get me through. And it kind of sounds like it gives you confidence to navigate this and somehow trust, although it was so severely broken by your husband, that you will get another job. So your trust in yourself has been expanded. Yeah, I, I think that's fair to say. I think my musings now are, have I become so self-reliant that I won't need anyone else in the future and I will push people away in the future. So it's almost being careful not to go too far the other way. Yeah, I mean, I, I, and I imagine that that's a sort of a movement in and out that you can imagine that, I've got everything now. I know how my kind of window, I can boundary myself and keep myself safe. And so the idea of putting yourself out and at risk, kind of being vulnerable and going out of your comfort zone to dare to love someone else could be a potential kind of defense that you do push away. Yeah. I think the only thing I have in my back pocket now is to know that I have been through really hard things. I can manage a house. I can run a house on my own. Um, I do have a brilliant support network of friends and family. I feel hopeful for the future. So that's a good place to be. Hope is the alchemy that turns a life around. Hope really does change every moment of your day, doesn't it? That you can have a little light that you can head towards, that you have a plan for, that you have a plan B, that you know that you can survive. And also the belief that you can make that hope happen is very powerful. I I agree. Um, I was reading one of your books actually about hope. Um, so yeah, I really agree. And I think it's, um, you know, you have to have some positivity um, towards the future, depending on individual circumstances. You know, sometimes the future may be less certain or, or perhaps even more limited. Um, but yeah, to have some hope that things will be okay in the end is, um, is I think, all we have, isn't it? 
It is all we have. It's, you know, where certainty ends, hope begins. And none of us really have certainty, do we? I mean, every day is a kind of risky business. So if someone's listening who is in the kind of very bleak place that you find yourself, where they go to bed hoping they're not going to wake up in the morning that dark, what would you say to them? What would be your piece of wisdom for them? I think it's really important to remember that how you feel now doesn't define you, doesn't define your whole life. Um, I think it's also important to reach out to people that you can trust, that you can speak to. And if you don't have anyone like that in your life, obviously there's professional services that you could talk to. Um, I know having come through the other side of it, that mm, these feelings are temporary. Um, so I think yeah. that's the main thing to hold on to, that it might feel really, really bad right now. And it's very easy to say, but I absolutely promise that it's not always going to feel that way. Yeah, that this too shall pass. Exactly. Yeah, that's the book I'm on at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, we are wired to change. And when we're in it, we really don't believe that this will ever, ever go, you know, in the it's the darkest hour, is it, where we don't believe there's going to be dawn, but actually there is. We just have to find ways of supporting ourselves, given we feel so bad. And I feel very touched by hearing your story, your process of really suffering and how you've managed it. And these aren't like happy ever afters, are they? It's like you're still doing your day and you're having challenges and there's a new one now, which is finding a job. But that yeah. you're... You're learning and growing as you navigate this rather than feeling that you're a failure. Your sort of relationship with yourself really does feel like it's changed. All the techniques, you know, whether it's exercise, and that doesn't have to be running a marathon. That could be going for a walk no. around the block in the sunshine or, you know, just getting some fresh air um, and having a good support network um, and just having something positive in your day, whether it's just a nice cup of coffee or um, sitting down and stroking your pets. I've got two lovely cats, so that really helps as well. Just these yeah. small things that we can bring in into everyday life. Um, if we can focus on these small things, um, then that that really does actually build up to a greater effort of, um, of well-being, I think. Yeah, I really totally agree. I think small steps and small acts of kindness to yourself and ways of being do have transformational outcomes. And so it, we're coming to the end. I was wondering, do you have a question for me? You may not. My question would really be, what's your best advice for a life that hasn't fulfilled a, a dream where there's like a broken dream? What would be your advice? Gosh, that's a really interesting question. I think recognize that life is very rarely our picture book dreams. It's not just one step after the other leading up to heaven, that life is messy and chaotic and unpredictable and bad things happen for no reason, sometimes for a reason. And we do want to have a picture of the life we dream of and also recognize that our picture of what we dream of may need to change <laughs> given the circumstance we're, we're in and what happens to us. That having very fixed beliefs and very fixed views of like, this is the only way I can be happy is a kind of prison sentence that you get locked in 
and we need the imaginative as well as emotional flexibility to adapt and change given what is in front of us and happening in us right now. Which is exactly what you have done, Vanessa Vanda. <laughs> Thank you very much. Yeah, it's all it's all a work in progress, isn't it, for all of us? But yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for being a guest on the Therapy Works podcast. One of the very special things about this podcast is that at the end of every episode, I get the opportunity to reflect on the conversation with my two psychotherapist daughters, Sophie and Emily. Sophie is an adult psychotherapist and Emily is a child psychotherapist. And as we all specialize in different forms of therapy, it is really interesting to see what their takeaways are, what their insights are, and if they think there was anything that I could have said or done differently. You'll quickly learn not all therapists agree on everything. But let's hear what their thoughts are this week. Hello, Sophie and Emily. Now we're going to talk about Vanessa and our really interesting conversation about finding her spe- herself being single now and then suddenly without a job. Um, what were the thoughts that came up for you? Divorce is a huge loss, like a different type of loss than the bereavement. And then obviously the loss of her job, you know, that was a lot of loss. And it also sort of made me think about how she had so many tools that she was good at using and so aware of her resources. I think that's something that is useful for all of us to think about and know. For her, it was exercise and friends and her pets and her parents, that she had these sort of pillars of support that helped carry her through the losses that she experienced and the difficult decisions and the loss of her future, right? Because it was obviously the loss of the relationship in the present, but also it was this sort of image that she had about what her future was going to look like, which I think is such a big part of any living loss. But for her to know the things that worked for her and really used them, I thought was such a helpful insight for other people as well, if they're in a similar situation. From her point of view and from her parents' point of view, she was saying, you know, this is the first time it felt like to her that she'd really failed at anything before. And as parents, when things like that happen or things go wrong for our children, particularly by the time they'd be adults, you can't protect them from that by that point in your life, by the time they're adults, when things go wrong, it wasn't the plan. And her plan for her, her imagined future, as you said, Emma, changed to what she had thought and actually although that's really hard the thing that is positive about that is you kind of learn your own resilience I suppose is what she felt like she was talking about that when we have those kind of challenges and then we do survive them and we do overcome them then we get a knowledge about ourselves of like well if I can do that then I can probably handle other hard things in my life and she talked about like initially when they decided that they were going to divorce she's like but I don't know how to fix up the house and I don't know how to put out the bins and then you realize that you can do those things and that can add to a sense of sort of self-efficacy and confidence and as a parent I guess you can't choose what happens to our children but we can facilitate them learning to be resilient through them to give them confidence when other challenges come down the track essentially which they inevitably do 
Yeah. And I think that the challenge there as a parent, particularly, you know, not someone necessarily Vanessa's age, but if you have a teen or early 20s child, is managing that balance between fostering dependence and giving too much independence that I think Mm -hmm. parents of late teens, early 20s, you're trying to muddle the through of like, I don't want to do everything for you because I want you, if something hard does happen, to know that you can actually do stuff yourself. But at the same time, at that sort of age, you're too young, just completely be cast adrift to figure everything out on your own. But for me, definitely as a nearly 40 year old, I feel like I have different sort of expectations of you as my mum that I did when I was like 20. I think it's such an interesting discussion for us in that, of course, your expectations of me are different and thank God they are. My kind of feeling for you is for the five-year-old you, the 20-year-old you, the 30-year-old you, and now the 40-year-old you. So that's all in me. And all of those bits of loving you and parenting you get ignited if you're if you're suffering so i find it almost impossible to know that negotiation between stepping in and helping out and stepping back and letting you find that you can do it yourself and when to do it and when not to and also as we've said many times most of the time there's nothing i actually can do apart from love you and be present but the feeling i have is wanting to frigging fix stuff Yeah, I have really small children and I sort of think quite often, actually, maybe this is like, I know it's hard, but maybe this is actually the easiest time of parenting because my children are three and nearly two. So it's like, there's not, it's it's quite obvious the things that I need to do and where to step in. And I have so much sort of power (laughs) Mm. over their lives. Even though I'm a child psychotherapist, I feel like I should know more, but I already feel like, oh God, they're going to get bigger and I'm not going to be able to do all those things. Just as a bit of research for people, if you look at Jeffrey Arnett, A-R-N-E-T-T, he wrote a very good paper and lots of research about emerging adulthood which looks at how young people today take longer to develop and fully mature than, say, my generation for lots of socioeconomic and parenting reasons. I think parents are more involved with their children because they go to university, all sorts of things. And I think particularly with COVID, he he sees emerging adulthood as a category to add on to adolescence as a next phase of parenting. I think the other thing that came up for me listening to Vanessa's story was the challenge of being in relationship with someone, a marriage or long-term partnership. And this can also be true sometimes with parents who is in either addictive behaviors or also long-term mental health challenges that are very chronic, is that the person who's in relationship with that person has a real challenge to face, which is how to stay well and look after themselves when they can quite easily be swept up along in what can be a very difficult journey of the that the other person is in. In AA, when they developed groups for AA and NA, Narcotics Anonymous, they also then developed Codependency Anonymous, which were people who became codependent in relationships. And often those people were people who had relationships with people who had addictions. Um, and this isn't in relation to Vanessa, but just generally, if this is something that you're struggling with, There's lots of really good literature out there 
to try and make sense of the loss of self, but also the desire to try and control and the patterns that emerge in you, or you might have already had, and that's why you ended up bonding with someone who had these addictive behaviors that are really worth exploring. There's a good book that we can put on the list called Codependence No More that really breaks down that patterning and what is helpful and supportive about reconnecting essentially with your own desires and needs. And often when you're in a relationship with someone, there's a lot of chaos and drama and hurt and pain. If you get lost in their world, in their dramas, in their damage or difficulty and lose yourself at actually what you want and you're obsessing, about, well, are they going to spend all the money today? Are they going to gamble it all away? And it sounds like for Vanessa, she was able to hold on to herself in a way that allowed her to say, I don't want to do this anymore. It's too destructive for me, uh, which is a powerful move to make. That's such a good way of elucidating codependence. Yeah, amazing. When you are in a relationship with an addict, what you really made me think is that there's actually three of you in the relationship, right? Because there's you, your partner, and then the addiction, whatever that is, whether that's work, whether that's alcohol, whether that's drugs. Mm. And when a person is an addict, for whatever reason, you know, there's often very good reasons that people are addicts. So it's not about blame or judgment, but the it's the addiction that has the control and the power and the investment and the thoughts and so when you're in a relationship with an addict you're not really able to be in relationship with them right like that connection is very mm. difficult to keep because the addiction is bigger people say that with an addict their primary relationship is with the addiction yeah exactly what you were saying also made me think so about relational dynamics, not just if you're um, in a relationship with an addict, but all relationships. And if you're in a relationship that doesn't feel healthy, that does sort of feel dysfunctional and you're trying to work out, should I stay with this person? Should I leave? What is the best thing? There's lots of complicated factors often like Vanessa had, we've got a house, we've got a mortgage. Sometimes people have children, all of these other complicating factors. Um, I suppose that part of the thought process of that is on the one hand if it's a sort of scales are there more positive interactions versus negative interactions and has this been going on for a long time but also thinking about your own role in the dynamics you know I, I think as you're talking so it made me think of um, the drama triangle where one person is the victim one person is the persecutor and one person is the rescuer. And actually that can happen within a two-person relationship that you can bounce between roles. And I think it's very helpful to think about, firstly, your own experience of relationships. So what was my role in my family system? Because maybe I'm replaying that role in our relationship. And how do we get out of this triangle, which is not helping anyone? So I think often if you are in a sort of more of a, victim mentality it's hard to get out of that and to feel like you have some power but i think reflecting on your own past relational experiences can be really helpful in giving you a lens to think about your current relationships and um if anyone watches bbc couples therapy <laughs> it's a really brilliant therapist on that who i think is amazing and she talks quite a lot about those kind of relationship dynamics so you could just watch that too yeah, and it's certainly in that dynamic, it can be easy to think that your locus of control is to try and control the other person, stop them doing this, make them do that. And actually, the only real locus of control 
that we have is what's my, as you said, share in the dynamics, what power do I have in how I relate to this experience? That's really interesting. Should we talk about the decision not to have children, which is statistically a decision that more and more people are making for all sorts of reasons? And I wondered what your thoughts were. I mean, I wonder if part of it is that people feel able to say, I don't want a child, that I think for a very long time, the expectation on women was that, and actually still, I think probably is to a certain degree, is that if you don't want children, there's something wrong with you. Like you're not maternal, you're not nurturing, you're not all these things like a woman is supposed to be. And so I think it was really hard and probably still is hard to sort of say, actually, I don't feel like I want a child for lots and lots of different reasons, as you say, mum, but I'm wondering if it's also about feeling like that's more permissible to be able to say it. I think that's true. And also on a separate kind of facet of it, from the younger people that I've spoken to who aren't sure about having children, the climate crisis and their feeling of anxiety about the future of the world has played a big role in feeling like they're still digesting the idea or feel worried about the idea of what kind of world and security and safety would they be bringing their child into when we really don't know which way things are going to go or we think we do know which way they're going to go and it feels scary. Um, And that's making people think differently about whether or not they want to have children or how many children they want to have. Um, I've been listening to recently a really interesting podcast from Therapy Uncensored, which we can put on, which is an intergenerational conversation between the two therapists and one of their sons about the climate crisis. And one of the first big fights they had was triggered by this question of, well, we're not sure we want to have children. And the reaction being very powerful from them being like, what? Um, (laughs) That's not a good reason. I think it's so interesting because I'm sure that's true and I'm sure it is a factor. And yet I also think that for every generation there has been a sense of insecurity and a sense of I'm not sure what world I'm bringing my child into. So if you think about the Cold War, if you think about, you know, the potential of nuclear bombs, whenever you have a baby, there's a sense of fear of like, what is this scary world? And so, but maybe it's something about climate change specifically that that makes it different. It sort of feels like a bigger topic for another conversation, doesn't it? The whole kind of mental health, climate crisis, how are young people, how are they envisioning the future? And is that different um, to, to these threats before? And I think one of the reasons why it feels different is that it's already happening. Some of those fears, obviously, if you're in the world war, it's already happening. <laughs> but things like... Um, fear of nuclear war is like a what if it does happen and I think for many young people it feels like well this is already happening and things like the IPCC report from the UN said there's no way we're staying within the two degree mark that's just not changeable now so there are certain markers which are fairly definite about how things are going to go I think psychically it's a big factor in younger people's mental health sort of landscape than it is for older generations Right. And I think maybe it's something to do with also um, the climate crisis is uh, in nature, It's with, but it also sort of within our control. There are things that we can do that would make a difference. And maybe the sort of mentality in the Second World War or nuclear 
I feel like the mentality was the opposite, which is like, what if we all get blown up? Therefore, I must have loads of children <laughs> yes. to like repopulate the world. Well, the mentality now is actually we have limited resources and what can we do? Yeah, to- that's true. I mean, it feels like this is a, another whole conversation and it's a really interesting one. And I think it will resonate with a lot of people listening. I mean, there are many more things that we could have talked about that we haven't. And as everybody knows, we don't rehearse, we don't work out what we're going to say. So it's taken us where it's taken us. Really grateful to Vanessa for being so open with us and having this fantastic conversation. And you, Emily and Sophie, for your contribution and everybody that is listening. I hope you've taken something for yourself.